Good morning, everyone, and welcome to church this morning. We are in chapter 6 of John, and we're starting every message in the book of John with this um, sentence and this message that is ultimately incredibly powerful, but also very powerful. And in that powerful and encouraging message, there also is a lot of opposition to it. It would be a beautiful thing if you were able to tell people about Christ and they would just automatically go, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard, I believe. And every witnessing opportunity ended up with a person saying, oh, this is amazing, this is fantastic, this is wonderful, I believe. But we live in a world of reality. And the reality is, is that the message about Christ, especially this idea that he is the Messiah, the overcoming God King, doesn't go well with a lot of people. They do not like the idea that there is a Messiah, that there's a need that they have that they cannot meet themselves. And they certainly don't like the idea of a king ruling over them or having any authority over them. We don't like anyone in authority over us. We rebel against our parents. We rebel against the government. And if we could, we'd rebel against ourselves because we do not like people telling us what to do or having rules over us. But the message that Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King is indeed very positive, very powerful, and very encouraging. But not everyone sees it that way. Especially in light of what Jesus has been talking about so far in John chapter 6. Because in this chapter, he has through, through his words and through his explanation of Israelite history, He's explained very clearly that if you do not believe in him, there is no salvation. It does not matter who your parents are, who your grandparents are. It does not matter what religious activities you do. It doesn't matter how well you've memorized the stories of the Old Testament. None of that matters. It does not matter if you've kept every feast and high holy day. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is Jesus, your Messiah, the overcoming God King in your life? Do you believe that he is the one who takes away the sins of the world? That he takes away your sins? And that message is very exclusive because all throughout Scripture we see that there is no other way to salvation but through Christ. There is no other name that you can call upon on your deathbed to be saved but Jesus. It is exclusive, and it is powerful, and it is beautiful to know that there is indeed hope and indeed salvation available to everyone. But this message that Jesus has been laying out in chapter 6 is definitely a difficult message. Even within Christianity, you have divisions within uh, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. You know, what does it really mean that Jesus gives us his body and his blood? What does it really mean that we're to eat of his body and drink of his blood? What does this really mean? Because we know that it cannot mean physically being a cannibal. And so Jesus explains himself time and time again, and he uses these statements that are bold, that are absolutely true. He's not exaggerating it one bit. It's not a fish story he's telling us. It's truth that he's telling us. And it is truth that divides, but also truth that unites. 
And today we see, starting in chapter 6, verse 60, all the way through verse 65, this very first section in which there's some response and reaction to what Jesus has been saying. And we've seen people respond to Jesus in a number of different ways so far in the book of John. We've seen them believe. We've seen them follow through. We've seen them pick up their pallet and walk. We've seen them cut to the chaste, cut to the heart, and then go back to their hometown and witness and evangelize how powerful Jesus is. And we've seen in other Gospels that that same message is met with hate. That same message is met with division and frustration to the point they want to kill him. You see, the message of Christ does unite. It does unite the believer with the Father and with one another, but it also divides to the core. And when you say there is no other way to salvation but through Christ, there is no other way to have your sins satisfied but through the work of the cross, it divides. And it comes to a point in this story where some division became clear. In verse 60, after these words that are just profoundly intimate and establishing that only Jesus Christ can satisfy the law's demands on our behalf and we have to partake of that sacrifice if we're going to have any hope. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Who can keep listening to this guy tell us that Moses is not the best, that Abraham was not everything there ever was, that the law is subservient to him, that he's the sacrifice, and that I have to eat of his body and drink of his blood to be saved? I was okay when he was telling us about loving one another. I was okay when he was saying, hey, you got to get right with the Father. I was even okay when he was saying, Tear down those religious leaders. They're leading you astray. They're hypocrites. And we're all for that. But when he tells us this has to be intimate and personal and you have to have a relationship with the son that is so uniquely personal that it is as if you were eating his blood, body and drinking his blood, that's hard to understand. Much less hard to accept and believe. And these were people who had been following him a while. It says many of his disciples. This wasn't random crowds. This wasn't a person walking by going, oh yeah, that's the guy that feeds us food. Let's listen to him. They weren't the ones having this reaction. It was the people that he had been with for a while, listening to his teaching, seeing his miracles, see him walk on water and calm the storm. They're looking at this whole situation going, this is a bit rough. I don't know where this is going. And Jesus, in verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them. Now, there is a lot to unpack just in that little phrase that John uses. And it should bring you both comfort and maybe a little bit of caution. It should bring you comfort because Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. But it should also bring you caution he knows what's going on in your heart. You cannot fool him. You cannot hide from him. You cannot even the quietness of your own mind without saying a word. Fool him, confuse him, or somehow pull the shades over his eyes. 
because he knows what's going on in your heart. He knows at this moment the disciples were grumbling. Maybe he heard them kind of in the background, but he knew in his heart what was in their heart. Again, should bring us comfort that we can't hide anything from God. He knows us intimately. He knows what we're suffering from. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows what pains us. But he also knows the grumbling that happens in our heart. Under our breath, hidden away from everyone else, God knows that. And in this case, he addresses them and says, do you take offense at this? Everything that he's been saying in chapter 6, he goes, do you got a problem with this? Do you take offense to this? Does this hurt your reason and sanity? Does this in some way confuse you? Does it some way challenge you to the point where you no longer want to follow me? It's getting real now because salvation is real. Sin is real. Death is real. Life that Jesus gives is real. And if you're not confronted with the reality of truth, then you're going to go through this life completely oblivious to what our real problem is. And it's not racism. It's not government control. It's not the lack of money. It's not even health issues. The real problem in life that you face and I face is our sin. And Jesus is getting down to the bottom line, saying, we got to deal with this. Because if you're offended, if you are in some way uncertain about what I'm saying, we got to start at the very beginning again. He asks another question. First, do you take offense at this? He's not, he's not upset that he's offended them, and he's not going to be cautious just because the words offend him. The gospel offends. Anytime you tell someone that they're not as good as they think they are, wow, that is hard. Not everyone can win first place. There's going to be people that come in second place, third place, and last place. And the last thing you want to do is distort reality by telling that last place person, oh, you know what, you did a great job, here's a trophy for you. What? You know what last place did for me one time in a, in a contest? It made me work harder so that the next year I wasn't in last place. But Jesus says it doesn't matter how hard you try because you are always going to be in last place. You need me to be in first place. You're either dead in your sin or you're alive in me. And he's not asking them, do you take offense so that he changes his message to be less offensive. He does it to pierce their heart, to show them their pride and arrogance and lack of humility before him. He then says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? See, because this was a big question. What do you mean Jesus came down from heaven? What do you mean you came from your father? We know that you were born Mary and Joseph, that you're a carpenter's son, you live in Nazareth, and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. We know who you are. What do you mean you've seen the father and you've come down from him and you're giving us his message? He says, you know what? Would you believe me if I ascend up into heaven again and you see me in all my glory? And some of the disciples would see that in the transfiguration. They would see him in all of his revealed glory along with Moses and Elijah, and they would be worshiping him. And then they would see him 
again on that day of resurrection when he ascended into the heavens in, in uh, Acts chapter 1. And the angels came by and said, hey, why do you keep looking up there? Go do your work. Go do what you're supposed to be doing. You'll see him come again in the clouds just like this. So he's saying, do you need proof and evidence? What more proof and evidence do they need? What have the disciples already seen in the life of Jesus? What have they seen? They've seen first and foremost God declaring to all the world at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They saw the Father's testimony that Jesus is good, morally good, morally right for this overcoming as our Messiah, God, King. They've seen miracles. They've seen teaching. They've seen him walk on waters. They have seen everything. What else do they need to see? He says it in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And that has been a theme he's talked about when he started talking to Nicodemus, when he said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is all confused. I don't get it. How can I, a grown man, go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus goes, you know what? With the flesh, it's impossible. But with the spirit, all things are possible. You must have a spiritual relationship with the Father only through the Son in order to have new life. It's the same message he gave to the woman at the well, the same message he's giving to his disciples, the same message he gives to the crowds. You need to be born again. You need new life, and you're not going to get it from the flesh. No matter how hard we try, we will never be holy enough to be right with God. We will never get a pat on the back from God saying, great job, buddy, you're in. There is no task that you can undertake that makes you more holy and more acceptable to God. The only task you could take on is belief. Belief that you're unable and belief that Jesus is the only one able. And when you surrender that pride and arrogance of, I can do it, before the throne and the cross that sacrifices an innocent man for you. When you believe that, trust in that, accept in that as your very own, then Christ, then the Father accepts you. And not because of your great wisdom of accepting Christ, because of Christ's great job at doing what he was sent to do. And what was Christ ultimately sent to do? What was his job? to die for you. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning that those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He knows full well that this message of life and hope and forgiveness is not going to be accepted by everyone. That there are going to be people, and we're going to see it's Judas later on in this same text, 
that from the very beginning knew that he was going to betray Jesus, one who walked in his inner circle of 12, would betray him. Not just deny him, but actually be the one that brings him before the Jewish leaders to be tortured, abused, and eventually murdered. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter is building upon a lot of Old Testament truth here, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rocks of offense, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined to do. You see, the message of the gospel, while it is full of love and hope, love that God sent his only son to die that you might be saved, that's the greatest love story ever. That is the most deep and meaningful and impactful story of love that we will ever hear. Yes, you can have a romantic story and you can love your spouse and you can love your children and that love is real, but that love pales in comparison with the love of the Father through the Son to us. But it also is not just a message of love, but it is a message of exclusivity. That you need to love God in the same way. Without that, you have no hope. And so the message of the cross, which offers forgiveness, is also a message of offense because, again, it strikes at the core of our heart. As someone who is unsaved, it strikes at the core of our pride and our self-reliance and our self-importance and our do-it-ourselves type of attitude. Or, even worse, let the government do it for you type of attitude. But you're having someone else do it for you. That is themselves dead in their sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it's the power of God. It is an amazing story when you think about it. God created. We sinned against God, the creator. Judgment came to us in the form of death, both spiritually and then physically. And that's where the story should have ended. But God intervened and added to the story and says, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the serpent's head. I'm going to send someone who's going to be a substitute for you. I'm going to send someone who's going to take the penalty and payment for your sin upon his own shoulders, and he's going to be innocent. In fact, he's going to be my only son. And I'm going to willingly give him for you, and you're going to receive him and believe in him. And you're going to be saved. And you're going to go, that's impossible. No one could love me that much. He goes, yeah, I love you that much. But what do I have to do to pay you back? There's nothing you can do to pay me back. It's free. It's a gift. And I'm going to call this transaction grace, undeserved, unmerited love and favor. Well, how long is that going to last? Eternity. What happens when I die? You're going to be with me. Well, what happens when I'm living? I'm going to indwell you with my Holy Spirit. But what about my big sins? Are you going to forgive those? They're going to be wiped 
clean, as if you've never sinned, as white as the snow, all the stains will be removed. But there's this guy over here yelling at me that I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. He's already defeated. Don't worry about him. Don't listen to his voice. But there's a lot of people who think they can do it themselves and a lot of religions out there. How do I know you're the true one? Because I give life. No one else can promise that. Life, eternal, everlasting, resurrection. Can I really believe that? Look at my son. Look at the miracles he's performing. Look at the words that he has. Look at the testimony from the very beginning to the very end of the book that I'm giving you. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm giving you all that you need to live, thrive, survive, and enjoy eternity. That's going to make a lot of people upset. Yeah, it will. Because it's going to cut to the core of their heart. And that message people are going to be offended at. And guess what? That message they're going to try and stop. They're going to try and stop the message of the cross. Other religions are going to come in and weaken the message of the cross. And yes, some of you will have to pay for your life and die for your faith. But you're not outside of the Father's hands. He'll still hold you and still guide you and still protect that which is precious, your eternal life before God. The message of the cross is so simple. Someone died and took your penalty in your place. But it is so hard because you can't do it yourself. Starting in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. All Jesus needed to do was go to one of the church growth conferences and listen to these experts at how to grow a ministry and a church to a success. He obviously didn't have very much business sense because you don't want to offend the majority of your, the public that you're trying to have follow you. He just needed a good coach on his side to say, Jesus, Jesus, okay, I know you got this going on for you, and so far you're doing some pretty cool miracles that prove what you're saying, but tone the message down. Why could Jesus not tone the message down, and why should you not tone the message down? Why shouldn't you? Because it's truth. Anything else is a lie, and anything else will not save. Anytime you say God gives you 99% of what you need, you just need to do that 1%. You have failed to present the gospel message. The gospel message is all of Christ. All of it? All of it. But that means he gets all the glory and all the praise, and I don't get a sticker with my name on it placed around the church. People won't name things after me. You're absolutely right. Because it's not about you. It's about Christ. Christ gets the glory because he did the work. And that message, people hate it hate it so much they'll take it out of schools. They hate it so much they'll take it out of every holiday we celebrate it. They hate it so much that they will speak contrary to it and have days celebrating things contrary to God's word because they hate the message that is so exclusive. Believe in Christ and you shall be saved. If you don't believe in Christ, you will perish. Many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, I am one of Peter's fans. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen, Peter. Amen. Some of those words are going to haunt you in the future because we know what's going to happen. You're going to deny all that, but you're going to get restored. The proof of his eternal life is in that restoration. But Peter is absolutely right. Where else are we going to find the words of eternal life? Where else are you going to find the words of hope? Where else are you going to find truth? Are you going to find that in Buddhism? No. Are you going to find that in Mormonism? No. Are you going to find that in atheism? No. Are you going to find that in humanism? No. You're only going to find it in Christ. That kind of helps us in a way. You might think that kind of puts us in opposition to everything, but it actually kind of helps us. Because we know through God's word, not arrogance, but we know through God's word and his spirit, we're the only solution they've got. We are the only solution to sin that actually works. We're the only solution to death. Imagine marketing the only solution to death. The only solution to a pain that all of humanity suffers from. And you've got it. And you can dispense it at any moment by saying, you need to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you do, you shall be saved. No other discussion. That kind of puts us in a position of huge responsibility. That we can communicate the words of eternal life and the story of Christ and people can be saved, not because of us, but because of the working of the Spirit and the Father drawing those people to himself. He says that much. Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've all believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I think that is a beautiful but painful, a beautiful but painful truth message that I think Jesus needs to bring to the hearts of all of his children. That you cannot just assume that religion and Christianity is yours because you go through the motions and you follow his voice from time to time. But there is a need to be self-reflective all of the time. Lord, am I right with you? Is there a sin that I'm hiding and covering from you? You already know that he can read your heart. He can read your mind. 
But how terrible if you never had that interaction and experience with Christ to say, Lord, am I truly one of your children? Not to bring doubt to your mind, but to bring reassurance to your heart and to your mind that he does indeed have you and you have that gift of eternal life. I don't think Judas ever had a moment of thought, is this real in my heart? But you have an opportunity to have the moment of thought, is this real in my heart? And you're going to have that perfect opportunity in just a minute as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, both with the bread and the cup, both symbolizing his body and blood, both symbolizing your partaking in life that Jesus alone has to offer. When we partake of this, we are admitting to the world, especially to the people around us, that I need something I can't provide. I can't do this salvation thing on my own. It has to be done by someone else. And the way we symbolize that, that Christ has given it to us, is through this sacrament, both the baptism and of the Lord's Supper, which he tells us in the Lord's Supper to perform as often as we can as we gather together. To take home in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they have conquered by him, or they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. We celebrate our death in this communion. And we celebrate the death of Christ because we know in that death we have life that Christ gives us. And I know that that sounds weird, it sounds strange, it can even sound confusing. But when you realize the enormity of this event on the cross and how he freely gives that salvation to us. We have no other response to that but humility. So I ask that you would come to this table with that humility, that you would sit there and you'd partake of that bread and of that cup with humility, because that touching and tasting of the bread and the cup is a reminder you need something that you cannot yourself provide, and it's the perfect sacrifice, the Messiah, the overcoming God King. Let's pray, and as we pray, if we could have the people helping with communion, come on up. We thank you, Father, for your greatness, for your glory, for your majesty. And we thank you, Father, for sending your Son, who is represented here in our presence, not only indwelling our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, but here, present with us in this celebration of his death. And yes, it is odd to celebrate his death. We usually mourn and feel sadness upon someone's death. But, Father, we rejoice that our life has been saved at the cost of our Messiah, the overcoming God-King, Jesus Christ, in whose name all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.